0: We're in the 8th chapter of Deuteronomy. Moses has uh, reminded them that when my children were little, we used to love to show them the uh, trilogy of the first three Indiana Jones uh, movies. And the one that uh, they liked best and I enjoyed was uh, Indiana Jones and the Last Crusade, which was about the search for the Holy Grail. You may remember that the Dr. Jones Sr. spent his life trying to figure out where the Grail was. And then to prepare for the tests that would come their way when they got close to getting the grail. And he would tell his son that they would face three tests of such lethal cunning. I love that because I think Moses could use that as well. Moses today is telling the people about three difficult tests. Now the catch is this, two tests they've already had, but the hardest test is yet to come. I want to talk to you briefly about the first two tests and explore the most difficult test in a little more depth. The first test was simply being in the wilderness. The wilderness itself is a test and a difficulty for the people. You may remember 70% of Israel, of the Promised Land, is desert. And in the desert, it's a dry land, a waterless land, it's a dangerous land. There are a number of ways to die there, and you can get lost there easily because every um, every valley looks the same uh, when you're there. If you don't know where you're going, you're in a difficult spot. So it's a time of confusion. It's a time of transition. Most people find themselves in the desert when they're on the way to something else. They, they are um, not where they used to be and not where they're going to be. But there's that in-between period so that we, too, find ourselves in metaphorical deserts. Perhaps when we're between jobs or a relationship that we had doesn't seem to be working the way that we hoped. Or maybe illness strikes our family. And the desert is that place where you're really not sure the way out It's not clearly marked for you. And Moses is clear that that sort of uh, situation is a real temptation. Because he knows and has seen what the people want to do sometimes in times of transition is go back to the way it used to be. And so they say to Moses, take us back to Egypt. And when Moses is on Mount Sinai getting the Ten Commandments, they tell Aaron, make us a leader who will take us back to Egypt. So one of the temptations in a a difficult situation or changing situation is to long for the way that it used to be and even, indeed, try to recreate the way that it used to be. But the reality, as you probably know, is that things can never be the way they used to be. And the way they used to be probably wasn't all that great in the first place. I don't know if you've ever come to this realization, but often the good old days weren't really all that good as we make them out in our mind to be. I think there's a lot of discussion, certainly I'm a part of it, and I remind you on occasion about what's happening to, um, uh, to the faith in North America, and we can talk about how fewer and fewer people seem to be attending uh, the worship in a, in a church or a synagogue on a weekend, and we lament the way things used to be. But do you know, in the days of our founding fathers, do you know that in the days just prior and following the Civil War... Do you know in the days of the turn of the last century, the 19th into the 20th, there were fewer people in churches and synagogues than there are today? Turns out that the good old days weren't quite as good as we like to remember them. But we still long to maybe go back the way we used to be, and that's always a temptation. Or another temptation is just to hope that someone will get us out of this desert without any pain without any sacrifice, that some magical root will appear or some helicopter will come and lift us out of the desert area and and take us away. But rarely is that scriptural. Uh, Rarely do you see that happen. Listen to David in the 23rd Psalm. Though I walk through the valley of the shadow. Have you ever noticed that David didn't say, though I walk around the valley of the shadow. Though I walk over the valley of the shadow. Though I float above the valley. The only way out of the wilderness typically is through with God. Because there's something about being in a wilderness at tra- times of transition in our life where God really works on our soul and works on our heart. And sometimes we have to stay there so that the wilderness can have its effect on us. And if we get out too easily or without pain or without sacrifice, it may actually not be a miracle of God. It may actually work against what god is doing so the first temptation is the wilderness and we're tempted to want to go back where we came from or get out easily and we're warned about that the second temptation that moses points to is in the wilderness there's often a situation of want or you're lacking you don't have perhaps all the food you would like you don't have water in this uh dry and thirsty land and so you're tempted uh when you don't have uh, what you want to uh, try to go and get something else that will make up for it. and Often when we don't have basic things, it sometimes makes us go around. And what happens was the first time God gives them a quail, you may remember that story, they basically just make themselves sick eating it. Uh, sometimes uh, when we're not having our needs met, perhaps emotionally, we may go around and try to find it another way. That's why it's very, you have to be very careful if, if in a marriage relationship it's not quite going like you thought it would be or like you wanted to be. That's a situation of wilderness. And you have to be careful about being tempted to go outside that to try to have those needs met in some other way. Uh, one of my favorite definitions of sin is this. Sin is meeting a legitimate need but in an illegitimate way. And in the desert, sometimes when we don't have water or we don't have what we need, instead of calling out to God and allowing God to give us what we need when we need it, we may try to go around God and manufacture it some way in our, on our own. And Moses knows that that's simply not going to work. So he knows the wilderness and the situation of want are two big temptations. But he also knows this. When you're stuck in the wilderness, sometimes one of the things that happens is you'll call out for a shepherd to guide you through the wilderness because you don't know where you're going. So often the people will call on God. The Bible seems to indicate that God feels that the closest God ever was to the people of Israel was when they were in the wilderness together because they really needed God and called on God. So sometimes the wilderness turns us to God. Sometimes when we're in a situation of want and we lack things, we'll turn to God and, and call on God as they did for water or call on God uh, for bread of one kind or another. So even uh, our lack sometimes of things and that we believe we need can turn us toward God. That's why the third test is so deadly. This particular test is the test that actually leads us away from God, that makes us more than likely not to call on God, but rather to count on ourselves. And the test is simply this, it is our wealth, it is our prosperity, it's when we come into the promised land and finally we've got enough food in front of us and we've got shelter over us and we think, well, look what we've accomplished. And a sense of self-sufficiency sets in and instead of like the other two tests, which turned us toward God, we in this test actually turn away from God. And So it could be prosperity. Wealth is the hardest test of all. For God's people, and I think Moses knows this, and, and perhaps you've seen that in your life. The great irony to me is that the gifts that God gives gives us actually turns us against God, because we get enough gifts from God, we start to thinking that they are ours, and that we're God, and we do not need God anymore. And and how that must be puzzling to God that we would go in that direction. But I've seen it, and you've seen it uh, a few um, uh, many years ago before I got here. Uh, We did one of those church campaigns where you go to every uh, house in the church and ask them to make a commitment to the church for the coming year. So we sent out these teams. And I remember sitting in my office and one of the teams came back and they looked like they'd been hit by a Mack truck. So I said, what happened? And they said, well, our last stop was at so-and-so's house. And when we asked him if he wanted to make a commitment to God through the church for the coming year, he said, no, no. He said, why do I want to give away the money that I have earned and made? This is mine. I did it all myself. Well, the head of that stewardship campaign was sitting in the office, and this is a small town in which we live at the time. And when the two people said that, the head of the campaign said, well, that's not right. They said everybody who was here 30 years ago knows that when he got out of college, old man so-and-so set him up in his business. And when old man so-and-so taught him the business and then retired, he handed it over to him. She said, that's a lie. He didn't do any of that himself. It all got handed to him. But there's that sense that when we have a gift long enough, it starts to feel as if it was ours to begin with. And gifts end up becoming possessions. And the more possessions we have, the more we seem to be turned away from God. St. Augustine made this observation before the fall of the Roman Empire. He said the Romans are depraved by their abundance. They have so much, he says, that it's actually going to do them in. And in fact, not too many years after St. Augustine said this, uh, Rome was sacked um, and its Western Empire fell. The thought that what we have done has made us who we are, that my power and the strength of my hands has gotten this wealth for me is the step Moses knew in a very deadly direction. But it's a step that a lot of us accidentally end up taking. And it can be dangerous because it it, uh, confuses us and we forget who really is in charge, who sort of owns everything we have anyway. And believe me, I do enough funerals I can assure you that if you think that what you have is yours and yours to keep, there will come a day, there will come a day when that will not be the case. We get confused about what is ours and what's been given to us. We're a little bit like a man. I heard John Orberg tell about him. Um, uh, Years ago, the man is in the last days, maybe even the last hours of his life. He's in his room. Uh, He's not very responsive. And his wife is in the kitchen. And the smell comes to the bedroom where he is. It's the smell. It's his favorite smell. Chocolate chip cookies. Warm and just out of the oven. So God knows how or where, but he got the strength to roll out of bed onto the floor and to begin to crawl through the, down the hall through the dining room into the kitchen to the counter where the cookies were to lift up his hand where the cookies were. He could smell it. He could feel it. And whack! His wife slapped his hand and said... Those aren't for you, they're for your funeral. And Ortberg says it raises a really important question for us. Who owns the cookies? I mean, the cookies that we have, who are they really for anyway? And one of the things that happens with wealth is we start to think, well, they're my cookies, and they're all for me. And we forget how easily they can be taken away because they were given to us to begin with. So Moses cautions, don't forget, remember God. Well, how do you do that? Well, this is a pretty obvious week to talk about how to do that. I think one of the ways you remember God and what God has done for you is simply through uh, giving thanks, through thanksgiving. I-, I would just offer you a couple suggestions this morning, one you already know, I've told you before. And that is, I keep a thanksgiving list. You can go home today, you can do it tonight, do it tomorrow. I make a list of everything I can think of for which I'm thankful that God is- has given me. And it's a pretty significant list and and it's in my Bible so I pull it out and go over it every day when I pray. And I assure you that if while I'm praying over that or or just following doing that, if somebody knocks on the door and says, will you give generously to so-and-so, I'm sure not going to answer them. Hey, all this is mine. I earned it. Because I know that's a lie. When I go over my list every day, I know I'm lying to myself and I'm lying to the world if I think it's mine. Or I think somehow I earned it. Remember that old song they taught us when we were little? Count your many blessings. Count them one by one. And when you do it and go over it, your heart becomes more thankful. But maybe your list isn't as long as it used to be. Or maybe your list isn't quite like you thought it would would be. And then the other reminder I would give you this morning is it is good to keep things in perspective. Uh, Simply put, most people throughout human history have had it a lot worse than what we have it today. People in ancient Israel were often uh, living in periods of want, uh, hunger, and uh, thirst. They found themselves even in the promised land, in a, a territory that was valuable to foreign nations who would come through and conquer them, who would burn and pillage and enslave. Life was very, very tenuous for them. And it helps to remember that we have it better than 98% of the people who live on our planet today. Just some perspective. It was years ago in the Charles Schultz comic strip, The Peanuts, that uh, at Thanksgiving Snoopy was looking in at the Thanksgiving dinner his family was having. And, of course, he was not a part of it. So he went back to his dog bowl and the next scene he's eating his dog food out of the dog bowl then the next, and he's kind of sad about that. Then the next scene, he's back on top of his doghouse, and it's got a bubble over his head. He has a thought, and he says this. Well, he said, it could be worse. I could be the turkey. <laughs> it could be worse. And for most of the world, it is worse. And for most of human history, it has been worse. Do not forget the Lord your God. This past summer, for the third time in my life, I went to Plymouth Rock. And I have to admit, Plymouth Rock doesn't do a whole lot for me anymore. There's not a lot left of it. You know, it's under glass, so you don't touch and rub it anymore. But I tell you, when you turn from Plymouth Rock and you look up the hill, you see a big box several times the size of our altar table, but something like that. And that big box, as you know, contains the bones of the pilgrims who died in the first year that they could not bury in a cemetery for fear of the native inhabitants. So they just kept the bones and finally interred them all at a later time in this box. And I recall that in the very first Thanksgiving that more than half of the people who came over on the Mayflower had already died from terrible diseases, some at a very young age. But what that community decided to do on their first anniversary with half of their members dead was proclaim a day of thanksgiving so that they would not forget and they would remember the Lord their God who had brought them into this new land. Do not forget the Lord your God. Let's remember with thanksgiving the God who has brought us where we are today. They received the law, encouraged them to pass it on to their children, now warns them of the consequences of disobedience and forgetting God. Be careful if you forget the Lord your God and do not obey His commands, laws, and decrees that I am giving you this day. Otherwise, when you sit down to eat and are satisfied, when you settle in your fine houses, And when your flocks and herds grow large and your silver and gold increase and all that you have is multiplied, you will forget the Lord your God and become proud in your heart who led you out of Egypt, out of the land of slavery. He led you through the wilderness, a vast and dreadful place, a waterless and thirsty land. He brought you water from a rock. He gave you manna which your ancestors had not known so that it it would go well for you and that you would be humbled and you would be tested. But you may say in your heart, my power and the strength of my hands have gotten this wealth for me. Remember, the Lord your God, it is the Lord your God who gives you the capacity to gain wealth. And do not say in, in your heart uh, that I have done these things. Be careful not to worship and bow down to other gods, for I testify to you this day that you will surely be destroyed. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Be seated, please.